So today on the Four Star Podcast, we're going to review the markets and how the markets have been since the election. And also, we're going to have a very interesting interview with John Buchanan. John is the president of Let Us Entertain You Consulting uh, Group, Let Us Entertain You Enterprises, which is one of the largest restaurant companies headquartered in the Midwest in Chicago, but with a reach all over the country. So we're going to learn a little bit more about the restaurant industry, which is something we seem to be focused on a lot, one of the most hardest hit industries. So we're looking forward to very, very much to that, and you'll enjoy that a lot. So um, that's our plan for today, and why don't we get started? Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Four Star Podcast. Uh, today, we will do a full review of where we stand. A lot of big changes have happened since our last podcast. And uh, I'm Brian Castle, your host. Uh, I'm here, of course, with Mr. Once again, Mr. Chris Reard. Hello, everyone out there. Glad to be on the podcast. For those of you new to the podcast, Chris is our Four Star Director of Development. I call him Master of All Things Portfolio Trading Reports. He still loves his Cleveland Indians. Sorry about that. And uh, caretaker of his new golden doodle puppy, Hudson. Hudson's not new anymore. Maybe I shouldn't say new. Two and a, two and a half now. About two and a half years. That's pretty yeah. old. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm, of course, Brian Castle, founder and CEO of Four Star Wealth Advisors in Chicago. Four Star Insurance as well. I'm an Eagle Scout, National Boy Scout, trustee of the foundation, philanthropic advisor, advisor to CEOs and insiders, chief dad to Quinn and Evan and husband to the amazing Tripti. Let us get going with the podcast today. And if you like what you're hearing, uh, there's always a way on whatever service you're on to rate. So we only ask you to rate us if you're going to give us a five. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise don't rate us. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, we're going to talk today about the markets, the economy, and then what we see out there. Chris, lots of changes in the markets uh, in the last couple of weeks. We took one week off uh, after the uh, after the election, but um, big changes in positioning, right? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of changes, um, really almost like a domino effect that happened. Uh, so domestic equities uh, still maintain the number one spot. We've seen it really strengthen there, gained 28 points uh, from our last podcast. So it's, it's sitting at the level 324 points, we would say, in the number one position. International equities was the biggest winner since our last podcast. It gained 71 points. It moved into the second position. Uh, and is now sitting at 233 points in the second position. So that's that's the biggest winner. That was huge. Yeah, it's a big move there. It moved all the way up from the fourth, fifth spot to the second spot. Fixed income uh, dropped from the second spot now down to the third. It lost 47 points from our last podcast uh, and it now is now sitting at 159. And then commodities. Uh, bumped up in the fourth spot now at 145, so it's actually close to overtaking fixed income, possibly in the third position. It gained 25 points from the last podcast. Cash is in the fifth position now. It lost 34 points, uh, and it's at 124. Uh, And then in last is currencies. It lost 38 points, and it's at 103. Uh, So really, you know, the trend or what we're kind of seeing has really been heavy movement upwards and I would say aggressive, more aggressive or more uh, Mm -hmm. asset classes, domestic equities, international equities and commodities. Uh, where we've seen several down downward movement in fixed income, cash, and currencies, which is usually associated with less aggressive asset classes. Chris, this is just one of the most amazing uh, two-week periods that we've seen in many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this move for the international sector to move all the way from the fourth position recently 
uh, second, third position a couple of weeks ago and to gain 71 tally scores. And for those of you, there are a few of you that have mentioned uh, that are listening that listen to the numbers and asked me about the numbers. There's about 1,100 tally scores. So to move 71 points positive, changing from negative to positive in one week is a massive move, frankly. And so international is really trending now. Mm-hmm. So our dynamic portfolio is now position number two in international stocks and still has a position in, in U.S. stocks, of course. So it's quite uh, quite a big move. We've been talking about international recovering at some point. Since 2009, we, we've been thinking that international stocks have been cheap versus U.S., and that's gone on for a long, long time. And we had a couple little moves where international almost acted well enough to become a positive asset class and faded. This time, it, it looks like it may not be fading. Yeah, I think the last time we talked about it was ending in 2017, which was a monster year for the U.S. And yeah. international kind of, it was a good year for international, but not as strong as the U.S. And I think going into 2018, we thought that we were going to see international really take off and, you know, catch up to the U.S. And they kind of sputtered. We never really saw it there. So it'll be interesting to see if we, we get a good reaction this year. Um, there's definitely, I mean, just like a lot of the value stocks here, they've, they've been beaten down. So there is a lot of value there with some of these. And there's a lot of room as they start to recover from, from everything going on in the world. Well, in fixed income, which is the safe bucket asset class, bonds, treasuries, municipal bonds, that whole segment lost 47 points too. So very big move. So the safe bucket asset classes, cash, which is U.S. dollars, of course, U.S. cash, and then currencies, which is basically cash in other countries, okay? They're all going backward, and the riskier asset classes, U.S. international and commodities, are all moving up big. So we're in a what we would call a risk-on market, hitting new highs. Dow's over 30,000. All the, all the uh, indexes are at new highs. So it's um, clearly a signal that the markets are going to probably continue to go up for a while, but they could end at any point, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're not, we don't do predictions in that sense, but it, nonetheless, still, uh, the trends we see right now would be markets would continue to go higher, at least here for the near term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that whenever you hit new highs or you hear the word new highs, a lot of investors kind of freak out. They have that fear. It's almost like you're standing on top of a building looking down uh, and you have this fear. But, you know, there, there's a lot with the way the, the government, the economy is set up right now. And moving forward, especially with interest rates and a lot of factors like that, uh, that there is the possibility that this is, goes on for you know a little longer, or a lot longer. Mm-hmm. We really, we really don't know, and we're kind of in unprecedented times to a degree. So right. um, I don't know if anyone can truly say what what to expect. Clearly, um, the economy is in in slowdown now. We'll talk about that in a minute. But with the economy slowing down, if it continues to slow down then that is something that could change the direction of the uh, market, although the market seems to be predicting a recovery in the economy, playing for a long term, essentially. There also is a lot of assets out there chasing goods, meaning a lot of money. We put $11 trillion in stimulus into the economy uh, between the Federal Reserve's moves and all the other all the other guarantee programs, money that's gone into the banks. So um, there's a lot of money chasing things, real estate, stocks, other things. So oh, yeah. that's a big part of it, too. No question about it. Um, if the economy doesn't recover uh, in the first and second quarter stronger than the weakness that we've seen here in December, we could be in a period of what they call stagflation, where interest rates, which are starting to creep upward a little bit, and markets will go up, yet the economy is slow. So we have inflation and stagnation in the economy. Mm-hmm. But then the markets could do something completely different, 
right? Mm -hmm. so, so anybody who's been around long enough has heard that term stagflation. I believe that was um, uh, economist Art Laffer who did the stagflation curve on a, uh, on a cocktail napkin sometime in the 70s, and that's how the, the phrase was coined. But anyway, um, those are the things that we're seeing right now. The broader stocks are acting better also. We talk about, you know, in previous podcasts, we have talked about how technology has been way up 20, 30% in all the different technology indexes, yet the dividend stocks are still down for the year. And they're still down a little bit for the year. But nonetheless, you know, the big wide divergence between the different groups. Well, now some of that is changing. There's a fair, fair amount of uh, bad news in certain technology areas. And so we've seen some changes. Textiles, and leisure stocks have been favored in our sort of seven major sectors. And four sectors were technology of the leading sectors, four of the seven, now only three. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a change there. Computers, internet stocks, and semiconductors are still there. But Chris, it was healthcare and software yep. that we came out, right? Yeah. So, you know, and I think, you know, even looking at those tech stocks, there's definitely going to be some winners and losers. And I think that coming out of this and, and kind of looking forward, you know, we're, we have a vaccine now. Hopefully this pandemic is going to start winding down. There's definitely some stocks that just got run up, like you were saying, Brian, just with the pandemic. One of them being like Zoom and, and other names like that, that were just like the hottest thing you could talk about or buy during the pandemic. And there's still going to be a, uh, integral parts of companies and everything moving forward. But there are they going to be have that growth there that they saw this that blast off that we saw this year probably not it's going to be more dulled down a little bit well and some of the some of the stocks that have done well during the pandemic because of the conditions that we were in some of those stocks are getting hit now we saw moderna uh, one of the big vaccine companies got whacked today as some of the firms didn't downgrade them but they 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 slowed their upgrade or they made them neutral because they've had a six, Moderna's up 600% this year. Will that keep going? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. so, so then the stocks got whacked. But, so there'll be some changes in emphasis. The leisure stocks coming in, Chris, are really interesting because that's the hotels and that's the cruise lines and that's all the, all the leisure activity. Theme the parks. Theme parks, pool companies, uh, SCP pool. Mm -hmm. So um, we actually, believe it or not, bought a cruise line stock. Now, the cruise lines announced that they were not going to do their December uh, December cruises now. That was going to be the beginning. So they're going to wait till February. But with that, still, the cruise line stocks are running. So mm -hmm. we have to be in the groups that are working. And if that's working for now, we're going to be in there. So we own at least one cruise line stock. And mm -hmm. we own Six Flags. Right? Correct. We own Six Flags. We own Harley-Davidson's, another one in there. I guess Leisure, riding a bike, you know, motorcycle outside. But yeah, I think the key there is, you know, these these stocks that were beaten down. I mean, leisure, you could say, was really at the heart of getting hit from this pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they were getting hit so hard because there was no end in sight. We didn't really know how long this was going to last, how bad it was going to be. Well, now that we have a vaccine, we kind of have an end in sight. We don't know exactly, but we have kind of an idea now. When mm -hmm. is this going to start to really end? So I think now that end in sight's there, um, could be a good time to kind of start buying because these stocks are still really low. They still got beat down. They maybe not be at March lows where, you know, some of these were trading at single digits in some cases, but they're still low comparatively to where they were pre-pandemic. Clearly. And, and, you know, as regarding the pandemic, you know, we're seeing now some record numbers of infections and, and, uh, 
and pa- you know people passing away, which is all very sad. But yet, certain states have not reacted to this by lockdown. Certain have gone back to the lockdowns, but certain have not. So we're seeing a divergence now in how people are reacting to it, and states are reacting to it. I spoke to a good friend and client of ours who is in New Zealand, and they're operating without restrictions and without masks now. So there is an end game to this, and I think the market is more focusing on that now and the economy recovering, even though we're having a short-term difficulty where certain states are locking down. And in the the face of the same mathematics and the same – uh, same detail analytics some states are not shutting down they're just letting everyone live their life so we'll see uh, there'll be lots of stories written about all that later on but nonetheless we're, we're looking for the end of this yeah and I, I think the market's really looking at like brian said we're seeing this kind of short-term spike they're looking at it at that as more of a short term maybe a quarter the first quarter could still be bad just if we see what we see here. But as things start to get rolled out, hopefully in the second quarter we see it, you know that increase. We always talk in that relative. So the second quarter going to be relatively better in the first, and are we going to continue to pick up from there? Mm-hmm. And that would be the positive sign, and that would be what the markets want to see. So turning to the specifics on the economy, uh, the unemployment rate went down to 6.7%, but the participation rate went down. So a lot of people that were in the market lost their jobs, and then a lot of people who were out of the in uh, out of the job market gave up. So people left. So the participation rate in the economy went down. Labor force fell by four hundred thousand people. So clearly, both numerator and denominator are going down. But the unemployment rate has stayed about six point seven. That's a, a decent employment rate. Obviously, we need to get that below five before we have full employment, or we had it as low as three before. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we want more people to get back in the labor market as well. The unemployed, the employed number went down. The actual number of employed people. Chris, you mentioned the claims were higher. Yeah, unemployment benefit claims rose by one hundred thirty-seven thousand. Um, I think this is last week, so um, the first week of December. Uh, so at 853,000 um, unemployment claims now. Um, yeah, and I don't think, I think the key is is to get below that 5%. We're, we're going to have to be back at fully open, really, um, mm-hmm. or somewhere very close to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I think 6% is probably about the best we're going to get um, with where we are right now, which yeah. is as positive as it can be, I think. Um, but I think that we're going to see that rate rise uh, probably the next month or two, mm-hmm. just with the way things are trending in certain states. Like like Brian said, we're seeing lock kind of shutdowns again happen mm-hmm. in certain states, especially major cities. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if that did rise short term, but hopefully long term, we kind of start to see that really chip away and move back down. Absolutely. On the job front, hottest job areas were healthcare, transportation and logistics. Also, construction jobs were up 27,000 in the latest job report. Goods producing up 55,000 jobs. Manufacturing also up 27,000 jobs. It was retail uh, down 37,000. So that's kind of where, you know, a lot of the pain has been in hospitality also. You know, we've seen uh, a number of changes also in basically uh, businesses, you know, getting acquisitory or expanding. Uh, Amazon has gone into pharmacy, and then we, we've seen a lot of the pharmacy stocks crater as well. Uh, there's been a little bit of a backlash, or some of the big technology companies have become so big and so powerful, and they've used some of that power in ways a lot of people don't like. And so both, both the Republicans and the Democrats are after some of the big technology companies mm-hmm. to limit their power through antitrust, the Clayton Antitrust Act or the Sherman Antitrust Act. So, so we'll see how that all develops. Um, what else do we have out there, Chris? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the other key on the technology front is we're seeing another boom in IPOs. Uh, we just had, I think is this week or last week, we had Airbnb come out and DoorDash, who, I mean, they feel like everyone kind of knows of big tech names out there. And, you know, I think if we re- rewind back two or three years, we were talking about you had this these tech darlings that were out there. You had the Ubers and all these companies that were private and they didn't want to go public. And then you had about a two-year period, I would say one and a half to two-year period, where we we just saw just a barrage of them happen where Uber, mm-hmm. Lyft, Spotify, you know, one after the other. And I think Airbnb, DoorDash fall really right into that, um, really trying to get, you know, monetize and really get the investors in there. So that was a big, big news there. Couple on, on that front, let me just say this too, that the IPO speculation has been just wild and rampant uh, to the point that uh, now recent IPOs are coming out and they're trading 100% higher than their their price, uh, the IPO pricing price. So the people that buy the stock on the prospectus, meaning they get shares from their broker at $15 a share and stock opens at 30 or 40, that's, we haven't seen that in a long time. The general model, and I spent many years working at a firm called William Blair, where IPOs were done and I was involved with the executives of the companies and the IPOs, they would price them such that the aftermarket buying would go up 20 to 25% in the aftermarket. So everybody had a big win on the first day. But, you know, 50, 100% gains on the first day, that means that they underpriced the IPO. Mm-hmm. So the shareholders of the company lost out on that, right, including the people who are selling and then the shareholders of the company that would get capital in the company to build a company. Yep. So it'll, it'll hurt their growth if they do that. But anyway, so we're seeing some wild speculation. They need to kind of solve that issue, the investment bank. So, but uh, we can't solve that here. So. No, no, yeah. I mean, it really, it's the the companies that get kind of hurt by it, right? Because yeah. they don't have as much capital. All sounds great, but it's not really good for the economy to have IPOs to open 100% above oh, no, original right. pricing. And yeah. that's the investment banks. That's they're they're the ones that are supposed to be pricing it, right? So, that's right. That's right. Um, I think on top of that, you know, we're right now one of the biggest news is we're having the dollar trade at a two-year low. And a lot of that's feeding off of uh, kind of the possible upcoming stimulus bill, possible with the election over or the election over. Most likely we have a Biden presidency is what, what we're kind of seeing right now, most likely with the Democrats usually comes increased spending. So I think people are you know baking that in. We're seeing the dollar trade much lower. And on the flip side of that, when the dollar trades lower now, Bitcoin tends to like to trade higher. So uh, Bitcoin just today, I believe, tops 20,000 dollars per one bitcoin for the first time ever so we're really seeing that spike really back to the frenzy level we saw almost two years ago now mm-hmm. i would say and once again of course while bitcoin was at four thousand dollars a unit back in april of 2019 very little interest in it we've got more calls about bitcoin lately than <laughs> now that we're at a new high that's a uh, human nature i guess right exactly when i buy the new high don't fear the new high but maybe they should have called us at four thousand no anyway. exactly exactly <laughs> So um, anyway, the other the other volatility we're seeing is uh, Brexit. So the end of this year, the Brexit is going to happen, whether there's a deal or not. So there's a lot of volatility. Traders are making bets on whether a deal will or will not take place. And it seems to be varying week by week. I think last week it was all but guaranteed there was not going to be a deal. I think today or is either yesterday or today the uh, UK uh, came out and said had parliaments be on standby in case there was going to be a last minute deal. So that's really swinging around the pound uh, versus the dollar especially. We're seeing a lot of volatility there as people are making really massive bets uh, on what's going to happen. Yeah. 
Uh, and then on top of that, the latest news, and this is actually hot off the press today, is the Massachusetts security regular regulator filed a lawsuit against Robinhood, which is kind of that new, I think it's relatively new um, stock trading app, app that was out. Mm-hmm. And they filed it for gamification or investing um, and not having the best interest for their customers. And mm-hmm. we talked about this, I want to say, back at the beginning of this year, how you know these apps kind of became the, the, the rage and they really, they had this big concept of, you know, really easy to make a trade here and there. And, you know, what Rob or what these regulators kind of found out is you had these new investors that would go on there that would make in some cases, in the course of a year, a new investor making 6,000 trades in a year and, and really not understanding what they're doing and, and really not kind of helping out these in, in clients really of theirs. So yeah. um, it's going to be interesting what the result of that is, because that's one of the things we've really seen come from this pandemic is a lot of people uh, tried to go become traders. And we had that really horrible story in Illinois of a kid who didn't understand really what he was doing, trading options, um, showed a negative, I think it was like 800,000 or yeah, something. A massive negative. It turns out it was a positive. No, it was a positive. He didn't understand his trading screen. Yep. It was just how the options were settling. One had, I think, settled, but the other one, he was covered pretty much on it. So yeah, and he, he ended up committing suicide. So it's going to be really interesting. There, there probably will be some regulation or something to come out of this because there's just been it's been a, a little willy nilly, you could say, with with trading this year, especially. Yeah, stock trading can be a lot of fun, but to turn it into gambling and to turn it into like a sport for young people is probably not a great idea. No, and and I think it, it came to rise this year with sports for the most part, especially beginning half of the year, uh, really not being present. People instead of gambling and betting on sports they decided to bet in the stock market Mm, yeah so and then uh the last little thing that i have that came out of this is uh the u.s recently declared switzerland and vietnam currency manipulators um which the u.s has definitely been a lot more aggressive in this um i think that would in some cases people would maybe be taken by surprise but you know i I think that it's important and just because we declare them a currency manipulator it's kind of a, a starting kind of hey we realize you're doing something wrong. We want to work with you. It's not like we're declaring necessarily like war against them. We're just saying, hey, we, we notice there's some things off by this. We want to work with you and make sure we're on the same page with it. Exactly. Um, so it'll be interesting how that comes out. But that is a, a something to note. And we definitely, the Trump administration has definitely been a little more aggressive mm-hmm. uh, with certain countries going after that and making sure they're not taking advantage, uh, not devaluing their currency or anything to take advantage of the markets. Exactly, exactly. And of course, we do a little bit of manipulating it over it ourselves with issuing all these currencies and everything, but mm-hmm. it's all within the context of the Fed, so I guess that's okay. But when people do things that are unfair, they, they call countries out for doing that. Exactly. So we're coming to the end here. Um, you know, the big story now is that vaccines are actually being administered as we speak now. Uh, it's still going to take months and months to get vaccines widely used, but nonetheless, it's probably going to be the first responders and people in protected classes that need the vaccine are most at risk, and then eventually throughout the rest population. So there's positive things. As I mentioned, uh, we we had our uh, good friend and client in New Zealand who is now operating where they have no issues anymore again. They had a little spike after they were in complete lockdown, and now they're back to wearing no masks and and normal life. So that's Mm -hmm. great. So we'll be there again soon. 
I did want to highlight um, on the Leadership Matrix blog, if you go on the Four Star website, fourstarwealth.com, we have all the different blogs of the different advisors that work at Four Star that do blogging. And so we put out interesting articles. There's an article on there about uh, this new concept called mo Modern Monetary Theory. It's called MMT. And so MMT, the basic idea is that deficits don't matter and we can keep printing money and spending it because we control the currency. Right? That's the theory. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a lot of spending and this year the the deficit the national debt went up five trillion in one year when all the numbers are in. Um, we had five trillion in debt in nineteen ninety two. The entire history of the country up till nineteen ninety two we had five trillion in debt. Now we're at twenty seven trillion in debt. So Clearly, we had a pandemic issue that caused some of that this year, but we've been overspending and deficit spending in a massive way for quite a while, well over two decades now. And so it's probably not a good idea. My, the article that is in there describes what happens to all that debt. Some, the, somebody will have to pay the piper, either the people that bought the debt who will see that debt de devalued uh, or defaults it on, or if we print money to pay it, the value of the debt and all the money will go down just to pay that debt. So there's so many implications to it. We could also reserve, lose our reserve currency status mm -hmm. if other countries aren't going to be spending and running deficits as badly as we are. So we're on a, on a negative trend in that regard, uh, which is probably why the dollar is weak, and that's probably why Bitcoin is at new highs exactly right. and why gold is going up. People are worried about our currency. So we got to get control of it. MMT, we're going to say it right here, is faulty thinking. And there's an article there from John Cochran, professor at University of Chicago Booth School of Business, my alma mater, who is, calls himself the grumpy economist. And he talks all about why deficits do matter and why MMT is faulty thinking. So have a look at that. Another really interesting article that I found from that same publication, the Chicago Booth Review, was about social media influencers. And I've been the first one to uh, somewhat belittle at times uh, you know, careers where they're not considered to be serious careers like club promoters and things like that. But social media influencers, people using social media for positive ends, is a good story. So there's a story about social media influencers rather than just doing social things or causing trouble, actually doing good things. There are farmers in rural China who in many cases don't even understand the pesticides that they're using or in just rural uh, countries all around the world. So local influencers who are active in social media in this story that's in that article that's coming out on the Four Star Leadership Matrix podcast or website, I should say, blog post over the next day or so, uh, talks about how they used the social media connections with all the farmers to get them to use better more clean pesticides, less toxic to the environment, increased yields, and cause less pollution for the environment. So great story. Incredible. Uh, incredible story. Let's use social media for positive ends instead of attacking people and abusing people on social media. Uh, let's use it as a way to communicate in a very, very effective way, which is what they did. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Chris, I think that's all we got today, huh? Yep. Let's, that's it. Let's leave it there. Everybody stay tuned for the interview with... John Buchanan, the president of Let Us Entertain You Enterprises and Let Us Entertain You Consulting. We'll talk a little bit about restaurants. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. So don't forget, if you are out there and you uh, have friends that have not heard our podcast, forward them the podcast or go on to any of the services. Uh, we are now on, uh, we've been heard on six continents now. I guess we're a hit in Brazil. We keep seeing people in Brazil watching our podcast. Also, don't forget... 
Forster has a great team of advisors who have access to all our models and research and the services methodologies and our award-winning platform. So please contact us if you want an advisor. Uh, I'm at bcastle at fourstarwealth.com. Uh, fill out the website contact information. We'd be glad to help. Remember, give us a five out of five perfect ranking, if you would, and, and we'll leave it there. On behalf of Laura, Chris, Chris at our home office, Brian, Tucker, and Karen on the East Coast, and also our new administrative assistant, uh, Melissa, we are signing off today until the next podcast. Thank you very much. So welcome back, everybody, to the Four Star Podcast, and we have uh, a special guest here uh, who's going to join us today, John Buchanan. John's the president president of Let Us Entertain You Consulting Group, and it's part of the Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Organization that is one of the most groundbreaking organizations in the country, starting with a small restaurant in 1971 called R.J. Grunts, and now has grown to one of the top restaurant companies all around the country. John's the president of Let Us Entertain You Consulting Group. Uh, so, John, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you here. And, and here, uh, participating in the grilling, um, we'll say grilling because of the restaurant industry, Got it. is Gene Witt. And Gene Witt is a four-star advisor, good friend of mine, and also in the restaurant industry with this Let Us Entertain You organization for, for a good period of time, and then also other restaurants as well. Yep. So we have some real restaurant timber here on the podcast today. So again, welcome Gene and welcome John. This company, uh, the Let Us Entertain You, was started by Richard Melman and Jerry Orzoff, 1971, as we talked about. And then John, you founded, or you joined the company in 1978, right? Yes. Great. And have you been in the restaurant industry before? I, that? I was in the, in the industry prior to joining Let Us. Prior to Lettuce, I was with the company that opened the restaurants in the original Sears Tower when it first opened. Nice. And that now is called the Willis Tower, and it's a completely yes. different situation. But that was, at the time, the largest largest building in the world. So a very iconic building. And uh, to staff the restaurants there was probably a very high-profile job. Congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. I learned a lot there. I was, I, uh, as it turns out, I was the youngest member of the management team there. The average age of the management team was 56 years old. Wow. I was 22. 22. So, <laughs> so you got some really good uh, experience with guys that knew what they were doing. Most of them. Most of them, yeah. And you taught them a few things. So you've been with Lettuce now for? Uh, 41 years. 41 years. Wow. Well, for, so, I'll be 42 in January. Wow. Congratulations. And so now with this group, what, what have you all done with this, with uh, Lettuce Entertainment? Well, I started as an assistant manager. My uh, background is all operational. I managed several of the lettuce restaurants. Um, in a relatively short period of time, actually just a couple months, I was promoted to a general manager's position with lettuce. And then soon after that, Rich Melman asked me to step out of operations and start our human resource department. Okay. We, we had really nothing at the time. And we wanted to systematize that and uh, articulate it better and so forth. So I headed that up uh, for a couple of years, but I missed the excitement of operations. I wanted to go back into operations. Uh, so I trained somebody to take my place and, and move back into operations, created a couple of concepts. And, and then about 
21, 22 years ago, uh, I drew up plans to have a separate consulting group under the Lettuce Banner. Mm -hmm. And we've worked with all, all types of clients, um, large restaurant corporations, as large as McDonald's, for example, was a client, all the way down to mom and pop operations. We've also worked with ballparks, coliseums, grocery chains, hotel chains, car washes, even a string of hair salons. Nice. And you still also consult with all the Lettuce Entertain You? Well, generally not. If they asked for help, um, I'd okay. certainly be willing to help them. But, you know, our culture is such that everybody knows those core elements. And those are the elements that I'm sharing with clients. That's the good news for the client, I think. Yeah. You know, if, if they say I need a management training program, I don't create something from scratch. You, you know, I'm going to customize what we do for their use because we know it works. It's what we do every day. Right. That's exciting. So you got a lot of, lots of experience, lots of knowledge. And, uh, and I should say, I've been a, a fan of and a participant uh, uh, patron, I guess, at the restaurants for 35 years. So not quite as long as you, but uh, and let us entertain you. Restaurants are always the most organized restaurants. There are really good staffs, really high quality food. Everything about it is fabulous. Oh, thank really you. Interesting ideas. So, so you have a lot, you have a lot to be proud of and, and uh, thanks for being with us again. So, so John, one of the things that a lot of people keep talking about in the last few months is, you know, the complete destruction that's gone on in the restaurant industry, the, the whole hospitality and leisure, whether it be restaurants and hotels and cruise lines and, and, and airlines have been decimated because of the COVID. Sure. Uh, and in your business, what, 100,000 restaurants apparently have closed and they say for good, 500,000 are on the brink. Is, are those the numbers that you're seeing? Uh, they are. They are. And one thing I would say is rather than focus on the doom and gloom of, you know, half a million restaurants going away, the question I'd be asking is, what about the ones that have survived? Yeah. What are they doing? Right. And what kind of position are they going to be in post-COVID? Right. You know, what, what, types of, what types of qualities have enabled them to do that? And I think that's an important message for restaurateurs and probably for people in all sorts of businesses. Yes. Um, for example, you know, we not only do I see what's happening with lettuce, I have the advantage of seeing multiple clients, you know, around the country. And what are they experiencing? What are they doing? What, what are their hardships? And it's pretty clear to me that the clients that are not forward thinking, uh, are going to have a tough time. Clients that are resistant to change, clients that are crybabies, clients that want to blame somebody else. Look, nobody predicted COVID. You know, it, it was on us and, and killing us before we even knew it. Um, yeah. So it's not something you could have prepared for. Yeah. But also keep in mind that more so than most industries, the restaurant industry was better prepared to deal with COVID than, than a lot of other kinds of businesses. I, name me any other kind of business that gets regular visits from the health department. <laughs> right. you know, I mean, restaurants are used to that happening. You know, right. now we obviously had to step it up by a factor of 10, 20 or whatever, but um, 
you know, and th those kinds of protocols are a hardship. Uh, in many cases, it's uh, increased operating costs. Um, there's the cost of partitions and all that kind of stuff as well. But smart restaurants were pretty much able to take things in stride mm -hmm. because they're used to sanitary procedures in, in right. their kitchens and so forth. But so back to the, the kinds of uh, clients or restaurants or owners that aren't going to survive, they're not fighters. They're, they're yeah. not fighters. You know, look, it's been tough on everybody. But if you're going to, you know, sit in your chair and cry in your beer about how tough COVID has made for, you know, has made it for you, I can't help you. Yeah. And remember that most restaurants operate on a very, very tight profit margin, four to five percent. And you cut down the seating capacity in a restaurant by 50 percent. Layer on top of that, all of the people that are afraid to even order food from a restaurant and an awful lot of restaurants can't survive at 50 percent of their former revenue. But you also have to remember that most restaurants aren't operated that efficiently. Right. They leave a lot of money on the table every day. That, that's where a good consulting service comes in. We can show them how to fix that. Yes. But if you were operating poorly before COVID, you're not going to be operating any better afterwards. Well, John, what do the good restaurants do? Do they have better computers? Do they have better processes? What, what do they do? It's more a matter of attitude and passion than anything else. And I think the restaurants that will do the best post-COVID are the ones who are willing to tackle the challenges with the same kind of enthusiasm and passion that got them into the restaurant business to begin with and got them to a successful point. When you look at a really successful restaurant, granted, some of them just got lucky and fell into it and, you know, and, and they're making money hand over fist. But most of them, had to work really hard at it. Yeah. And they did it with a particular passion you know, for that industry and serving people and serving great food. And if they want to survive coming out of this, they will have to embrace the idea of change. All sorts of things will have to change. Yes. And they're going to have to do it with the same kind of passion that they originally went into it with. Yeah, we all do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that, that sounds exactly right. You know, we're seeing all these outdoor restaurants now in, in some of the major cities, Chicago, for sure. I just, got a, I just got a text about another restaurant that's offering outdoor parties and things like that. I think I remember you saying earlier in our discussion that maybe the restaurant industry has learned some new tricks in this environment. You know, tell us about that. The outdoor, is this a new thing really in, for most restaurateurs? Well, dining outdoors isn't new. And, you, and we'll use Chicago as an example. Chicagoans love that, that decent weather because it's such a short window. Yeah. You know, so during that window in the summertime in Chicago, every, even at lousy restaurants, you know, the outdoor cafe is loaded. Uh, oh, yeah. People want to be outdoors and, and yeah, enjoy right. the sunshine, fresh air right. and so forth. You know, but in most cases, those opportunities would shutter pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but now restaurateurs are finding ways to extend that by a couple of months, mm -hmm. you know, getting get maybe another three months out of those outdoor seats. You got to mm -hmm. go to the expense of a tent and heaters and whatever else. 
but um, uh, you know, but Chicagoans love to avail themselves of that. So, and, and but that's just one of the tricks that you were mentioning. Uh, if you look at smart restaurateurs, and I, I'd certainly classify lettuce in that group, they're all doing something additional that they weren't doing before. They might have thought about it. They might have considered it. They might have even done a half-assed version of it, but now they have to get serious. There are things they have to do to generate the income that they've lost because of COVID. So you'll find all sorts of creative solutions. Like just say, for example, you don't have to come into the restaurant to pick up your order. It's all done on your phone. You call ahead, you, you know, you, you beep them when you're driving up to the curb, they run it out and give it to you. You're already paid for, you're off and gone. You know, the capability and the technology to do that has been around a very long time. Not that many restaurants were doing specifically that, but now it's a huge plus. Mm-hmm. You know, or things like, not just ordering off the menu and taking food home to your family. Now we've got a family style meal that's assembled by the restaurant with all the, all the components that you need. And if the restaurant has the ability, maybe they're doing wine pairings as well. You know, you're going to get this food and this menu and these sides, and you're going to get two bottles of wine that match, you know, that that pair well with this food. Um, You might get to-go cocktails. You know, there are other promotions. If you go and look at the individual restaurants, you'll see how creative they've been in coming up with new things that they didn't bother with before because they didn't need to. Right. Now it's I went went to Alinea and did takeout at Alinea. Uh Find a restaurant, the average bill is 200 bucks a head. And uh, and I never thought I'd see that. Do you think that'll continue? Uh, Probably. Probably, because you're right. No, higher end restaurants like that never considered it. My food is art. It won't travel that well. Right. You know, so I wouldn't right. even consider doing that. Now they're doing it. Yeah. John, let me ask you a question about um, getting back to what you said earlier about most restaurants are not really operated as efficiently. There's a lot of discussion in Washington right now about a, um, a second stimulus. Obviously, the businesses, the restaurants in the Northern Hemisphere of the United States have a lot more challenges than those in the Southern part of the United States. Uh, Do you feel that that money should be distributed equally or what, what do you feel about the financing? And if an operator is really poor, are we just throwing, because it's all taxpayer money, are we just throwing money, good money, good after, money bad. after bad? Well, there's no, I don't think there's a simple answer. And I think it's a particularly complicated issue. The way I think of it is this. Think about your cousin who comes to you and says, I'm having a rough time this month. Can I borrow some money for rent? If you give him a one-time stimulus of you know $1,500 to pay his rent, so what? You know, you've stayed off, you know, the, the problem for 30 days. You know, is he going to come back to you the next month and say, can you loan me another 1500 I'm still struggling. Giving money to restaurants or businesses that are struggling or on the brink like that doesn't seem like a good strategy to me. It really doesn't. You know, it, it's comparable to saying to your cousin, all right, I'll loan you 1500 bucks, but 
when are you going to pay me back? How are you going to pay me back? Why don't you have your rent money? What the hell did you do with it? Did you drink it away? Did you, you know, what? where's the money? You know, you were living fine in that apartment for the last two years. Now you can't pay. What happened? And the guy says, well, I lost my job. Okay. You know, if you don't get another job, if you're not out there, now your job is finding a new job. And if you don't find another job, you're going to be back at knocking on my door again, looking for more rent money. I can't do that. Yeah. And the government so, can't either. So don't, I don't want people to put words in my mouth and think I'm saying, don't give restaurants any money. That's not what I mean. What I mean is I think it has to be done very, very judiciously and not across the board. You're going to be throwing away an awful lot of cash that healthier businesses could put to better use. Do you think that this COVID situation is going to change future concepts well, that will be coming to the, to the marketplace? Yes, um, I do. In, in fact, I have a couple of clients who have contacted me about the fact that they're working on a new prototype for their, con for their brand. And, um, you know, they want to discuss what do I need to do for this new prototype? So for example, you know, I might say, Maybe a drive-up window isn't appropriate for the type of concept they're doing, but maybe you have to have a separate takeaway pickup door. You know, we have a couple of restaurants that do that. You know, you don't come right up to the front desk where the hostess is and so forth. You go in a separate doorway and it's a real efficient thing and you pick up your food right away and you're gone. You know, drive-throughs take up a lot of space in the parking lot. Or, you know, it's, it's going to cut down on your your parking capacity and so forth. But so maybe what you want to do is to build in that capability of people easily being able to walk in and pick up their food and take it out. It might affect how menus develop. Some menus uh, won't travel all that well. You know, I've often had this struggle with clients where they, they're offering their entire menu to go. This is pre-COVID now. So I'd order a couple of things and have it delivered to my hotel room, for example. And it was terrible. It's something like French fries. They don't hold up well. They just don't. Fried foods in general don't hold up very well when they travel any distance. You know, you put them in the container and they sweat and they get soggy and the breading falls off. So maybe that shapes what the carryout menu is going to be going forward. You know, it, it may affect your labor picture. Maybe you have to have uh, separate staffing for this takeaway window, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, if you want it to be efficient and, you know, and so forth. Yeah. One more, more question. Cause we're a little short on time. What is your biggest concern for the industry right now? Well, I think I'd go right back to what I said earlier. People look, you want to make you want to make more money in a restaurant. There's generally two things you look at. How do I increase my top line sales and how do I decrease my expenses? And what most clients tend to focus on is give me a silver bullet. Give me, give me a magic bullet that's going to boost my sales by 20%. And I think those people are morons. It's just not that easy. It, you know, if we were that easy, we'd be doing it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there may be things you can do to improve your sales. But if you're operating inefficiently, inefficiently more sales is just going to mask the problem for a short time. 
you do extra sales, you're not bringing enough of it to the bottom line. You do one extra dollar in sales, you, you should be bringing 40% of it to the bottom line, at least in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, but if a restaurant isn't prepared to change their, their systems, their training, their this, their that, they may do more sales and not bring any of it to the bottom line. So a lot of extra work for a very little reward. Yeah. Yes. So my concern would be that owners, restaurateurs haven't learned the right lesson coming out of this. And, and look, you can never control what the other guy is going to do. And you can't control nature, something like COVID. Okay. What you do control is what's within your four walls. That's where restaurateurs need to focus uh, more than anything else and do the very best job possible within their four walls. Nice. So, John, um, we're going to finish up here in just a second, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, now that we're, we're seeing vaccines distributing and, you know, there are a lot of countries that are doing better. America's kind of experiencing a little wave, but it seems like we're going to go into what will hopefully be the end of this COVID over the next couple of months, maybe quarter, maybe two quarters. What does the recovery of the restaurant industry look like to you? You could predict what it'll look like. I think it's going to be a very lengthy recovery for the reasons we spoke about earlier. Okay. Um, you know, I don't see restaurants going to 100% capacity for at least two quarters, maybe longer. Okay. You know, and that's going to cause a lot of those complainers and crybabies to moan and say, you know, yeah. Why don't you open this up for me so I can do some real business? So there, there's going to be that problem. There's going to be the issue we discussed about everybody not being willing to come back into restaurants, maybe for another year or more. I mean, I think eventually they will, but, you know, it's going to take some, just like it took a catastrophic event to keep people out of restaurants, you know, a rising COVID rate and so forth. It's going to take some big event to get people back into restaurants in great numbers. Right. You know, and I don't know what that event is going to be. Maybe it, you know, it, it's a, a flat COVID rate for, you know, a certain period of time or, you know, who knows, maybe at some point we'll be able to say it's eliminated. Yeah. You know, everybody goes back to normal, have a great time. Right. Um, but I don't see that happening very soon. I, I think the entire next year is going to be a struggle for the hospitality industry. But hopefully things get better and uh, within yeah. years we go back to normal, right? Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Right. And I think we're learning a lot of new tricks and uh, and a lot of new information and uh, the, the weak hands will leave and the good, good operators, like you said, that know how to run things will end up doing better and they'll have a great career anyway. Yeah, they, they have to be open to the idea of change, trying new things. And adding new tricks to their toolbox, so to speak. Yes. They've got to be willing to do that because continuing to do what they've always done isn't going to be good enough post-COVID. Well, I'm, I, for one, I'm looking for, forward to all the new interesting concepts that people like you, John, and, and others in your, in your field will come up with. So we're, we're pretty excited about the restaurants. We're, we still go to outdoor restaurants now and yeah. we'll be more later on and, uh, we really appreciate your insights uh, today on the, the Four Star Podcast, John. Thanks for being with us today. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care. Thank you.